Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon Belden Castingway, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. For a change of pace, today I am joined by a Wesleyan parent, Jim Citron, whose sons graduated from Wesleyan in 2012 and 2014. Uh, Jim, to start out, why don't you tell us a bit about your current professional role? Thanks, Sharon. It's a real pleasure to participate in this great program. Uh, I am the head of the CEO practice, the chief executive officer practice at Spencer Stewart. Spencer Stewart is the world's leading executive recruitment and leadership consulting firm. And we recruit chief executive officers. We do uh, succession planning for large companies as well as major not-for-profit organizations. We recruit board directors and C-suite executives around the world. And we do uh, work across industries from uh, financial services and high-tech to startups to Fortune 10 companies. And I've been at the firm 23 years and absolutely love what we do. Now, you've developed a professional reputation for finding the right leader for the right organization for some pretty heavy-hitting clients. Was this a trait for which you demonstrated early talent? Uh, were you giving your high school classmates advice on where to go to college and things like that? Well, the funny thing is, and I have learned this personally, and I've studied this issue, that my career, like all careers, really only makes sense in retrospect. I can find clues, Sharon, to things I've done all throughout my career that have led me to do what I do today, but of course I never knew it while I was going through it. For example, even though I'm a Wesleyan parent, I was a graduate, I was a student at Vassar College, and when I was a senior at Vassar, I was an admissions office interviewer. And I loved interviewing prospective candidates, and I got excited thinking who was the right fit for Vassar and how to sell the ones who were considering other great schools like Wesleyan or Brown or Harvard, and then also on making good assessments. When I went, I started my career on Wall Street as an analyst at Morgan Stanley, and I led analyst recruiting, and I always found that really fun. After business school, I went to McKinsey, this great strategy firm, and I led the, one of the recruiting teams for Harvard Business School, and I always found that idea of finding the right fit and, uh, and selling great people on the great opportunities was something that wasn't real work, quote-unquote, but it was just more fun and, and natural. And then when I was at McKinsey, in 1993, there was this incredible placement that Spencer Stewart made. I wasn't at the firm back then, but the recruitment of Lou Gerstner into IBM. And for many listeners today, you might not have even heard of Lou Gerstner, but back in the 90s, he was a household name, one of the great chief executive officers in America. Sure. And he came in from the outside and turned around the company. And I remember thinking that leadership was actually more important than strategy, and that's what really helped lead me to come to Spencer Stewart now 23 years ago today. You referenced that when you were at Vassar, one of the things you were doing was, you know, working in admissions, convincing students to attend that type of institution. Why did you decide to attend a liberal arts institution? Why did you think that was a good idea? And why did you consider it a good idea to send your kids to liberal arts schools? Well, I, I would be absolutely uh, making it up to say that I had done enough homework back when I was 17 years old 
to conclude that that was the right fit for me. I was very lucky. I came from a, a, a great family where education was really important to us. Both of my parents went to went to college, and my older brother was uh, was at Dartmouth, and so kind of a great academic school on a in a beautiful setting was my uh, idealized uh, vision of what college was supposed to be. I visited lots of schools, and I ended up applying to a really broad set of schools. Some were large universities like Michigan and Virginia, and many were great liberal arts schools like Vassar and Middlebury. Uh, when I visited, I just felt really at home. I felt really comfortable. I loved the interaction between students and each other. And I visited a class or two, and it was kind of exciting, but it wasn't as exciting as it turned out to be in real life, because when I got there, it was so exciting to be in an environment where it was cool to be smart. It was really exciting to be in an environment where the professors were actually the heroes, and and that was what was so motivating, and then to learn from some professors who literally, this is not an overstatement, Sharon, to say that some of my professors changed my life, and it was so exciting. So I've become much more uh, emphatic about the value of liberal arts. So tell me about what your mindset was when you graduated. I would say that my mindset, this was 1981, so it's a long, long time ago. This was at a time when big companies like Procter & Gamble or big commercial banks like Chemical Bank or Manufacturers Hanover Trust would go to many, many campuses around America recruiting students, and some came to Vassar as well. And basically, as an economics major with a minor concentration in French, I was kind of oriented toward jobs as opposed to going straight to graduate school or something else. And I grew up in a family where my dad worked on Wall Street, so I was kind of oriented toward business and Wall Street. And so I literally just tried to get the best job I could. Uh, and I was lucky that a couple of good firms came to Vassar to interview. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, Morgan Stanley, where I ended up going, they came to campus to interview on what turned out to be a bit of a trial basis. And they gave a presentation uh, of which about 60 students came. And then they asked for resumes to be submitted, and I was one, and I was one of 12 or 13 that were selected to be interviewed. And I practiced, and I got ready, and I was one of two Vassar students selected to go down to New York to, uh, to interview. And, and the more that I in, in, engaged with them, they seemed really smart. They seemed really nice. They really liked what they were doing. And it was very prestigious, and uh, it just seemed very natural. And I was fortunate to get the job. But of course, that is not the way it works for the vast majority of people, including my own kids. So I, I recognize how kind of fortuitous that was, but that was my mindset, just trying to get a good job that built on what I had studied. And I was more reactive, to be very frank, that, uh, that a couple of companies came to campus. I don't think I actually initiated an outreach to any company back in that, in that era. But again, those were different times when that was more the norm, training programs across America, big companies, and, 
and it's much more fluid and much trickier today, as we both know. Right, right. So tell me about your decision to go to business school. You, how long did you stay at Morgan Stanley? I was at Morgan Stanley for three years, and I had applied to business school as a senior in college. Again, back in those days, it wasn't unheard of to go straight to business school. It was silly, but some people did it, and I applied to a, a number of schools, and I got into some great schools because I was privileged to have done very well academically and had good summer jobs. And um, so I got in. I did not get into Harvard or Stanford. I did get into Columbia, Northwestern, um, and uh, and Cornell. But I decided to take the Morgan Stanley job, but I had it in my mind, what a dream come true if you're interested in business to try and go to Harvard Business School one day. And in an analyst training program uh, where the expectation was that you stay for two or three years and then you would all leave and go back to business school, that was just what you did. And so I was incredibly lucky and, and, and again, really uh, amazing that I was able to be accepted to Harvard Business School in 1984, and I went from 84 to 86 and had an incredible experience. How was it different than undergrad? It was so different on so many dimensions. Um, the similarities, which are fewer, were that there was it was a campus situation. Uh, everybody was working really hard, living in a, a campus community setting. So that was very similar. I would say that the, even though their diversity on, on one level was much greater, diversity of nationality, of race and gender, it was actually, even back in the 80s, Harvard Business School was very diverse, very global. Uh, so it was very diverse on one level, but it was much more homogeneous than faster or what Wesleyan would be, for example because everyone was there with a shared interest in professional development, in business generally, in high achievement. So even though it was very diverse, it was actually quite homogeneous. I always like to think of it when I was there, everybody were like winners and everybody was super type A, super motivated. And, and it was this really magical environment. Um, some of the differences uh, were actually in the way that the curriculum was taught. Uh, there was no such thing as lectures and note-taking and test-taking. That just didn't how, that isn't how it operated. At Harvard Business School, like many schools now, it was taught by the case uh, method, the case method in sections. And so let me try and briefly describe it because now 30 years later, what I take away, what I what stays with me from that amazing experience goes directly to the way that things were taught back then and still in many ways are taught today. So every class is done after based on a case and for whether it's accounting or marketing or finance or ethics, there's a business case that you read and you prepare and they're really complex business issues with decisions that have to be made with supporting analysis that has to be done. So you prepare for a case by reading it and you work with a study group, you come up with your points and your questions and your issues, and then 50% of the grades were based on your oral verbal contribution in class. 
So you couldn't just be laying back. You had to participate in the conversation. And that taught you how to communicate. And it taught you how to read a room and know when to intervene and not take up too much airtime. And the dynamics in a section, you were the same 90 people for the entire year, and you had to really understand your impact on a group of colleagues. And that way to communicate and interact with a group, even though it's a large group, it became a small group as you worked together over the course of the year, was incredibly valuable learning. And it taught you how to analyze a problem, come up with a point of view, and then communicate that point of view. That skill set is absolutely critical, whether you serve on a Wesleyan University board of trustees, a corporate board, whether you're pitching for a new piece of business, or whether you're interacting within whatever organization you're working in right now. So that, that was a big difference. It wasn't just you know, just it was it wasn't just a professor speaking or sharing knowledge and doing reading and then being tested on that. It was that ongoing process. Now, Jim, since you and I have spoken a bit about your career path before, I know that you had a couple of missteps along the way between when you graduated from Harvard and when you started your long tenure at Spencer Stewart. Can we start out with your first role after HBS? Absolutely. And like I always say, and I say this to many people who I talk to about these issues, uh, you know, you don't want to make mistakes, but we all know you're going to make mistakes. And as painful as they are to make an experience at the time, you genuinely can only learn from making some sidesteps. And, and clearly, in my case, I learned very, very clearly some of what's important. And that's great to be able to share some of that today. So in fact, yes, I, I, I came out of Harvard Business School and I had I developed uh, a framework for what I thought was going to be useful and, and valuable in determining what I wanted to do. And I tried to develop criteria for opportunities and then rate and rank all the various possibilities against those criteria. Again, that's a pretty logical approach, and that's fine. My criteria back at the time were I wanted a company uh, that was prestigious. I wanted a company that would uh, that would be be very frank here. That would where I would make a good amount of money and loving sports as I have. I played three sports in college, and I love sports to this day. Uh, I wanted a company or a job that would offer me a lifestyle that would allow me to stay fit and do sports. So I wanted prestige, money, and lifestyle. And that's fine. Uh, so I had all these different possibilities and different discussions, and I put all of them through that set of criteria. I literally, and then I weighted each of, each of those criteria as well, and I ranked all the possibilities. And no matter which way I cut it, one job came up head and shoulders above the rest, and that was to go into back to Wall Street to Goldman Sachs as a, an associate in their private wealth management business. Goldman Sachs, ultra prestigious, you know, uh, the, the financial markets and wealth management, super highly compensated. And because it wasn't investment banking, it was, it was, it was tied to the market hours, so relatively less hours. And I thought that was perfect. 
And so I, I was fortunate. Again, I pursued lots of different jobs, but I got that, and I, that's what I chose to do. But it was literally three months into it that I was realized I was pretty miserable. And over the course of the year that I stayed there, I was absolutely despondent. And what I realized I missed in that framework were two massively important things. One is, and this is, it's so obvious, it's almost hilarious. Uh, number one is you have to be interested in the work you're doing. Now, I, turns out, in private wealth management, everyone there loved investing and loved talking to clients and each other about the markets. And honestly, I'm a lousy investor, and and I actually hated up the markets, and I felt like you had no control over it. You know, you could analyze, you could recommend, but you really didn't have a lot of control over it. And I actually found it quite uh, just not interesting at all. But the other big point was the people, again, so obvious, but there were amazing people at Goldman, but, but there weren't a lot of people who I kind of identified as similar to myself. They were all their market gurus. That's what they loved to do versus the interests that I had had. So I missed uh, two really important things. And I also felt like when I came out of Harvard Business School, I felt like my, my skill set uh, and my breadth and interests were at an all-time high. And I, could, I was so interested in the world, and yet all that focus was at Goldman was on investing. And so I found that quite limiting. So I was fortunate, though, because uh, I had interviewed when I was uh, at business school with McKinsey, the strategy consulting firm. And they actually contacted me a year after saying, we really enjoyed meeting you in the process last year. I went all the way down to about to getting an offer, and then I withdrew because I accepted the Goldman offer. And they, they contacted me to say, as your career continues to develop, we'd love to stay in touch. And it was a very subtle, very well done thing. And they included a copy of the McKinsey Quarterly, which is their kind of the Harvard Business Review of McKinsey, they, all their research and articles. And I read it cover to cover, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is the kind of material, the kind of subjects that I want to be working on. So I actually called them back to say, actually, I got this letter. I would love to come talk to you. You know, Goldman's great, but, you know, it's really not exactly what I expected. And so, long story short, uh, in 1987, I would say I moved over from Goldman to McKinsey, and I had a great five-year run there as an associate and an engagement manager and a senior engagement manager, both in the United States and in Europe. That's great. Uh, and then you were at Reader's Digest for a while as well, Yes. Yes, this was my second big mistake. Uh, <laughs> I, I uh, at McKinsey, I worked on a number of different industries, but the the industry I liked the most was the media industry. And I was living in Stamford, Connecticut, outside of New York at the time. And I thought after five years at McKinsey, most people end up staying from anywhere between three and thirty years. But five years was a great time to then go off into industry. And, and at McKinsey, it's part of the culture. It's fine. Anytime you decide you want to do that, the firm supports you and, and you can go through an open process. And so I declared that my intention and, and then I decided I wanted to go into the media business. 
And so I prepared a target list. I prepared all my contacts against all the target companies. Uh, and I, I definitely learned some things from, from the prior process. Uh, and, and I went about interviewing with lots of different media companies. But the one that I went to, Reader's Digest, at the time, this is now 1993, they had just gone public. It was worth about $5 billion. It was a global firm. They had ma the magazine, the world's largest magazine. They had books. They had home, they had home entertainment. They had other things. It was actually a, quite a cool company. And it was located only 12 miles from my house in Stanford, Connecticut. So I didn't have to commute. Still, lifestyle was a big theme for me. I didn't have to commute to the city, much less relocate to Los Angeles, where a lot of other media was. And, um, and the other thing was the president of the company was a client that I had worked at when he was at a different company at McKinsey. So it felt really right. But what I failed to appreciate then, which, again, I've learned really powerfully, and I've seen this now over the last 23 years at Spencer Stewart, was the impact of people and fit. So when I, when I went there and I got the job, director of strategic planning, you know, prestigious job with a global company in a nice office setting in the industry I wanted in a good geography, uh, it seemed all right. Uh, but what I realized, again, only three or four months into it, was that as I looked around the company, I had taken it for granted in the prior 10 years that whether I was at McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, or Morgan Stanley, or Harvard Business School, all of these people around were like people who I were friends with and people who were similarly ambitious and, and just like great friends. When I was at Reader's Digest, it felt like I looked around and, and it didn't even dawn on me until later that there were very few people who I was a natural fit with. And so I learned very personally that having people at your organization, at your company, who you really consider friends, who you really feel natural with, that is really important. And, and there was the lack of that there. And just to underscore that with a lot of research now, I've learned years later that the single most important uh, explain, explanatory variable for job satisfaction is the degree to which you have people in your organization who you feel are close personal friends. That is the single most important thing, and I totally whiffed on that and didn't even understand that, didn't look for that, didn't get it, and that's also why I was kind of miserable. And so, again, those are a couple of my complete you know, left turns and right turns going to, to Goldman, over-focusing on prestige versus what the nature of the work was, or going to Reader's Digest, going into the right industry in a good location, but actually missing how important it is to work with people who you feel great friends with. And so here I am now, 23 years later, uh, blink of an eye at Spencer Stewart, where it seems like it's all come together for me. So when you first started at Spencer Stewart, you know, another big career shift for you, how did you learn the ropes? What sort of searches were you assigned to and what did you learn from that process? Well, our business is, uh, is very much of an apprenticeship business. Uh, the, the early searches that I worked on uh, back in the day, I've now done in the 23 years, I've done over 650 searches with some incredibly big name, prestigious 
placements like the CEO of Intel, the CEO of Cisco, the CEO of the New York Times company, the board directors for Amazon and Microsoft, the chairman of Twitter, uh, and on and on. But when I started, the early searches were a director of strategic planning for a regional uh, uh, savings and loan company, a the head of programming for a, a really uh, crazy uh, niche cable channel that, that made it only about a year called the Popcorn Channel that was going to be the, a movie trailer service. Uh, I did uh, a search for a chief financial officer of the of the baseball card company uh, Tops, and and you know so it started quite uh, quite you know kind of small and 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 niche, and it grew over the years, and I had a couple of big breakthroughs because uh, because I knew the media business, and this was now now ninety five ninety six. The, the beginning of the internet really started in like 95, 94, 93, where companies like CompuServe and AOL and Prodigy came online. And because I had a media background, I remember doing the uh, being asked to do a first a head of content, then a head of sales for Prodigy, and then a senior, then a CEO of Prodigy, and the heads of online for various media companies that were bringing their business online. And then back in 2001, I was asked to do the CEO search for Yahoo when Yahoo was a company worth $100 billion, which is ironic given their uh, sale process as we speak uh, right now. But I did that as a big CEO search. And so the more I did it, the better I got at it, the more you know our Spencer Stewart reputation grew, which already was at the preeminent firm, but my role within the firm and in the market, that grew. And then working on the more senior, uh, the more visible leadership assignments, that enabled you to get to know great leaders across industry, and that enabled you to then be more effective placing them, which led to the next one. So it was this positive flywheel of doing good work, getting, getting good placements, getting to know people in that process, adding value to them, whether or not they became the placement through a lot of career strategy, all the things that we've been talking about, I applied to the work. And even in helping determine whether someone was right, I, I helped people who might have been good on paper for something, but avoid big mistakes. And so my track record at making good placements really started uh, creating momentum. And, uh, and here we are, blink, third, 23 years later. I imagine that having worked on so many hundreds of searches that you have some really great stories. Uh, can you tell me one? Oh, I have so many stories. Uh, and I've been asked so many times to be able to write the tell-all book, which obviously I can't do in a client service business. Uh, but I, I will, uh, I'll, I'll share a couple of, a couple of stories that, uh, that I think would be really, really cool. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I will, I will say that, uh, you know, for companies like Twitter, where, uh, where I recruited, uh, Omid Kordistani, the executive chairman working with Jack Dorsey and the board or working with the board of Yahoo, uh, and recruiting Marissa Meyer in 2002, uh, you know, the, the companies like that or, or, or Intel, uh, 
the the need to work in absolute confidentiality is absolutely essential and you have some press who are uh who make their name you know breaking stories and saying oh so and so is likely to be asked to be the ceo of twitter or something like that we've went we've gone through elaborate processes to keep our candidates identities confidential and also to keep the process confidential so just as an example in one of those situations there was a, a particular reporter from from one of the most uh high profile uh journalistic organizations and this reporter had incredible contacts and was kind of tracking everything posting out at airports and 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 texting every board director on their cell phones and and all of that and there was a, a freak out that uh that and there was a board meeting coming up so we knew that they were going to stake out photographers at the company's headquarters for the board meeting so as a as a way to protect everybody's confidentiality what we did is we told all the board members and all the candidates that where the particular final meeting was going to be but then secretly we changed it to the company's law firm in in the next city over and we arranged a mini bus to take the directors to the thing and a car to take the candidates so no one knew where they were going and we were told later that this journalistic organization and it was not TMZ this is uh, one of the most prestigious they had staked out the uh, uh the company headquarters front and back entrance and had we not done that the whole thing would have gone up in smoke so that's just a funny little example um i'd say the other the other uh story i would just share here is that you know one of the things i've learned over the years is people tend to regret things they don't do more than regret things that actually even don't work out well and so uh i was talking to a chief executive of a very prestigious company who was doing really well in his role and uh and he was really intrigued with this major other ceo situation it was a big international relocation to one of the major european countries to take on an even bigger company and he really was deciding he didn't want to do it because he was in such a good role the other one was going to be quite challenged and it was going to be such an upheaval in his life and i remember having kind of a really soulful conversation about you know and and what i said was i said look kind of just close your eyes picture the conversation we're going to have in 25 years you're 70 years old you know you're on the rocking you're on a rocking chair on your front porch and sort of reflecting on your career you know if you look back back from then and you think about what you ended up doing and you chose to stay and kind of played it out pretty safely how would that make you feel and then i painted the picture of you know on that rocking chair uh kind of doing this and having that experience outside the united states in this massive thing and what that would feel like and he ended up through that kind of visioning exercise he decided you know what let's go for it and he did it and he had an amazing life-changing experience so those are just a couple of the other things that i would say are there common missteps that you see even very senior people make as they're going through the search process common missteps are uh a couple uh at 
the senior most level, it's sort of what I said about my own misstep at, at Reader's Digest. We At Spencer Stewart, we've done a lot of study on this, and there's a lot of academic research that corroborates this. Two-thirds of all executive appointments don't, that, that don't work fail for reasons of cultural mismatch, not a capability gap or an ambition gap or an experience gap. They just don't fit. And so it's really important for a hiring organization to be really clear about what kind of culture they, they have and when it comes to a CEO, where they're trying to move the culture and how the executive fits into the current or aspiring culture. And we've developed all these tools to help actually measure an organization's culture and to diagnose an executive on the various dimensions of culture. So that's number one, but because most that don't work, don't work for reasons of fit. The other thing has to do with uh, when you get in the job, uh, the, the, biggest, the biggest reason people end up not working at the top, top level is when their results after all the hype and all the honeymoon period of people uh, coming uh, coming into an organization and a hiring manager or a board of directors hiring someone, everybody's excited and the first 100 days is great and the first year tends to be really good. It's years two or three where the rubber really starts to hit the road. And um, and when, when leaders... Uh, either can't get alignment on what they're trying to do with their hiring manager or with their boss. So if there's a gap in what they're trying to accomplish, that's one. Or another is where there's kind of the overpromise under deliver syndrome. A lot of times people coming into these top roles, they have this passionate desire to be the kind of the, the solution and to lead the organization to the next level of success. And they're super motivated, and they sort of say, okay, here's my vision, here's the goals that I'm going to try and achieve. And, and they, they get, uh, whether it's budgets or strategic plans, they get hiring organizations to sort of sign up for that. And then if they can't quite deliver that or the market conditions change, then the psychology of excitement turns into under-met expectations. So I think that's the other thing to be really careful for. And I, the advice is to try and find the right line to painting an inspiring vision, but also under-promising and over-delivering versus the, uh, the ever going compared to vice versa. Now would probably be a good time to point out to our listeners that you've written a number of best-selling books on leadership and career development for those who want to learn more about your advice. And your most recent book is The Career Playbook, Essential Advice for Today's Aspiring Young Professionals. Did having your children graduate from college relatively recently contribute to your decision to write that one? Without a doubt. The Career Playbook can be directly linked to my own three kids who are now 26, 24, and 21, but all the trials and tribulations they were going through and all of their friends, and also my work with you on the board of Wesleyan and all the work we're trying to do to help college grads and young alums figure out how careers really work, how to get good jobs, and how to be successful. I would say that I was quite daunted on the topic because it's really hard to figure it out. And unlike 
my own personal story, which was, again, in retrospect, pretty easy, you know, putting your resume in, signing up on campus for interviews, practicing, getting one and doing it. That's just not the way most jobs are gotten today. And, and back when I started out of Vassar, the average person at that era would have worked between four and five companies over their course of their career. As we both know, the average college graduate today is going to work for between 10 and 20 or 15 different organizations. So it's much more fluid. It's much more challenging to figure out how to get good jobs and how to move from job to job how long, whether you, whether it's more important to choose a great job or a great company or a great organization, how to try and balance those inevitable trade-offs between money and the nature of the work that you're working on and lifestyle and geography and, and expectations among, uh, among college grads and, and people in their 20s and 30s today are also quite different from people in their 40s or 50s or 60s. So kind of putting that all together it was quite intimidating trying to pull something together that really worked. And through a lot of research, a lot of interviews, a lot of hard work with a lot of people, both in their 20s, college, university, uh, career planning leaders like yourself, chief HR officers, uh, and a lot of our work at Spencer Stewart, I was able, I feel pretty good that we were packaging real wisdom in a way that really helps young people and so that's been the career playbook. You've built your career on helping other people build their careers, but what advice would you give to your 22-year-old self if you could go back in time? How would you summarize all of this if you were talking to you? I would say that, I mean, I, I, I didn't do everything wrong. So I would say, yes, I worked really hard, work really hard. I would say, yes, be enthusiastic because attitude is so important and it seems again so obvious but and you kind of can't teach it but you also can teach it that that senior people look at people in their 20s and they 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 want they want people to be kind of forces of positive energy so have a have a great attitude um, i would say that uh not to be quite so uh i think the biggest mistake i made both times and i would I've now given this advice to others, and I would have given it to myself as a 22-year-old. Don't be so rigid in what you think the right criteria and the framework is. You know, go with people. Go with, you know, balance your left brain and your right brain and your, your analytical side and your intuition. I overly focused on the left brain side, and I actually personally am more of an intuitive uh, kind of uh, instinctual person, and I really kind of minimize that. So I would I would be careful about balancing the left. And you'll have some people who are much more comfortable being quantitative and and I would urge them to just let their right side go too or vice versa. So going with people, uh, focusing on what you're actually going to do and and the learning. And again I, I was I was I, I pleased with some of the decisions I made in that up until I came into this profession in 1993, everything I did generally, sorry, generally increased the number of things I could do later. So there's this other notion of uh, do you, for every decision that you make, are you increasing or are you decreasing your, the number of options that will unfold? And I think 
early in your career, in the first 10 or 15 years, it's better to be doing things that expand the number of possibilities. But then at some point, you have to choose something, and then you have to try and become really great at it. And that's where, uh, where again, I was fortunate to do coming into the executive recruiting profession back 23 years ago. Uh, so that's, those are a few thoughts that I would share. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today. As you know, we hand out your career playbook to graduates when they leave us, and we promote your parents' guide to the career playbook to help get the parents on board as well. But I appreciate you taking the time to tell your story with us today. Thank you, Sharon. Always a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.